Hello, everyone. Hello, and welcome back to... That was not a tea pour. No, that was a water <laughs> pour. Welcome to the festive sounds of H2O. Um, and also, to I would like to plug power cords. Uh, because without power cords, I wouldn't be able to record this. You know, just for the detriment of everyone listening to the dolce tones of my voice. Um, I am Full Metal Chicken. I'm Steph. I am part human, part chicken. <laughs> so that... You know, that's why when we whenever we go through like a drive through KFC window, I just say to the operator, this operator, operator. what is this, the eighties? Operator, this completes me. Give me, give me, give me my popcorn chickens. You know, and I release them in the. Into I the don't wild. understand why popcorn chicken is so expensive. Because it's small. No, but you don't. Do you know what I mean? Like a bucket of popcorn chicken is so expensive. But then they have these promos where they make it really, really cheap and then they make so much money because everyone's buying this popcorn chicken. I want to get like, you know how they got the big family feast bucket? I want to see like 10 bucks that amount of popcorn chicken. Do you know you can build your own KFC bucket on the app? It's really expensive to do though because you have to put a minimum amount of stuff in there. Yeah. Um, And... It works out depending on what you get. Like the stuff I would get is a lot more expensive than what a family feast would be. So hypothetically, if I was to pay two hundred bucks, would it be more worthwhile going to Disneyland than getting a Star Wars lightsaber? Mm. Yeah, two hundred dollars, darling, isn't going to get you to Disneyland. Isn't going to. It would pay for your ticket into Disneyland, and it would pay Disneyland. for your lightsaber. Disneyland. But I think it's pretty cool. I would love to go and to Disneyland. I've never been, mate. Not everyone had the childhood of. Well, before it changed in the nineties, I went to, I went to Disneyland, and like everyone now goes to. Oh, I say we're going to Disneyland. You know, now people say, Kylo, when are you going to Disneyland? What's with all the? There wasn't this much fangirling over Kylo Ren the last movie, but now everyone's fangirling over Kylo Ren, and I don't know why. I don't know, but I think there's a few people I know who would literally fangirl over the credits. Because there's... Anyway, you know, nothing. Um, life updates. Um, we narrowly, literally by a minute and a half worth of driving out of the storm cloud missed getting smashed yeah, last night by we, the massive we missed it. cell. So. That was a big cell. We were dropping golf balls. We weren't because... Well, not in our area, but no. in other areas. Literally, if we drove two minutes... The other way. That way, gone. Car, windows, gone. It would have been a chicken Do you know chow. how many houses got flooded on the other side? All of them. No, I'm being serious. I There were 800, last time I checked, 877 uh, in emergencies in the Vic Emergency yeah. app for calls for help. I remember one time there was a massive hail um, downpour. That was in the and- 90s, late 90s. Pretty much. And then I remember one of my mates, his dad, put a mattress on top of the car and everyone was laughing. And whose car was the only one that didn't get smashed yeah, that day? but apparently it was in Northern, Ter- sorry, Northern Territory yeah, that they got on holiday. And it was dropping cricket balls. And one of the other guys that came along, they well, showed this... up and the dints that were yeah, the roof, well, that was the window was, was smashed. That it's was like, what was dropping yesterday for people. Drop that hail. No, I'm being serious. It took, like, it took the... Hail for five hours to defrost, to melt completely. Yep. It was absolutely crazy. That's what, um, you know, the nature of hail is. And Ooh. you know, it's because the smoke literally circumnavigated the globe, came back yep. and caused Global a thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. 
And then, like, all these people saying, oh, we donated thousands towards fire relief. And then it rains. And it's like, well, that's called it the environment. It didn't rain where it was needed. No. And Just a because, do you know how much erosion happened? Because there's no, like, plant life to yeah. hold the dirt it's down. It's just like mudslides. And people from fucking the city who didn't get rained on were commenting to these people, oh, but you were bitching that you needed rain. And it's like, no, there's a difference between rain that you need to soak into the ground and eroding. Mm-hmm. Like people's houses were smashed. People's skylights, their houses got flooded. And this wasn't five minutes of hail. This was a good 40 minutes of we're talking got like you said it was bigger than golf balls actually it was like the size of an adult man's palm yeah so moral of the story is brick house make sure you don't put skylights in um if they do make and sure they're buy, reinforced make sure you get a garage to park your car in and also uh, get yourself a four-wheel drive because that's the way society's gonna go yeah or buy a tank no, seriously, yeah. I showed you the video of people who actually had four-wheel drives and they were able to drive yesterday. Yeah, but there's people home. like in England driving around in tanks. Yeah, but that's England. They're allowed to do that. We're not. But how cool would that be? Like, I'm not I... saying it's not cool. I'm saying it'd be very expensive. Like, have you seen the prices for diesel lately? Oh, heck yeah. But see, the thing is, that, look at it as more like a monthly stroll. A monthly stroll? <laughs> Through traffic. No, like, honk, like, you know, someone would rock up behind you and honk, honk. I mean, what do you do? Oops, I reversed. Bang. Yeah, Where'd I they suppose. go? Look, it's a pancake Volvo. Everyone loves Volvos. Talking you know. about loving Volvos, and while we're on the thing of travel, mm-hmm. today's quiz. Oh, boy. You're going to love this one. Oh, joy. If this, um, this better end up going where I think we're going. Mm, chicken. No. Okay. Let's see. Here we go. Everyone prep yourselves because... The chicken is on. No, the chicken is not on. It's oh, okay. travel the world to find out which Star Wars planet you should live on. Oh, what this... what link are you looking at? I don't know, but this better be Alderaan. Okay, so pick a city in the US you'd like to visit. Can I say none of them? Is that no? That's a bad joke. Haha. <laughs> ah, oh, uh, yes. God. No. Okay, so we have Los Angeles. Specifically, above and behind the Hollywood sign. Yeah, and then we have. New Orleans. Orleans. So, what happens if things aren't leaning? Oh there? my god, can you go Okay, fine, 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 fine. There's some guy playing a trumpet. Um, okay, Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle. Um, <laughs> then we have Los Vegans. I mean, Las Vegas. Um, Las Vegas. And it's like the... Not, yes. And then what else do we have? Scroll down. Chicago. We've got Chicago with the big silver ball donut thing. And last but not least, we have New York, and it doesn't look like a bagel. Okay, so which which city would I like to go to? Mm, let's see. Um, well, I've been to Los Angeles, so I'm going to go to Los Angeles. I said Seattle. I'm going to maybe go to Los Angeles. Okay, uh, which Asian country would you like to visit? Ooh, oh, congratulations. God. I don't know. See, I need to have my sound on for later on in the thing. Yes. I'm getting emails and I don't know why. And... It's busy town. So, oh, which God. Asian country would you like to visit? We have Thailand, where they sell ties. Don't be rude. I'm not. Singapore, Japan, India, Vietnam, or China. Theoretically, I'd love to go to all places, but that picture of Japan, yeah. the canal between the cherry blossom trees, that's got me. Yeah, Japan's awesome. 
Okay, choose a European destination. We have London, we have Athens, we have Amsterdam, we have Paris, uh, Rome, Rome, uh, and Madrid. Um, Let's see. London land. Oh, oh. It's I'm, a hard I'm choice. Kind of torn here. Uh, just because of. I'm gonna have to go Athens. Uh, I'm gonna go Rome just because of Assassin's Creed. In Star Wars. You know, Assassin's Creed has been to nearly every single country that is on that. Yeah, but hasn't been to older. Um, pick a country from South America. We have Argentina. We have Brazil. We have Peru. Peru. I mean, a lagoon. I mean, uh, we have Colombia. Colombia. Um, we have Chile. Put a jacket on. Oh, my God. And... Ecuador. Could you be any more white? Sorry. We have <laughs> Ecuador, which is um, a related cousin of Ecuador window. Okay. Anyway, um, I'm going to go Peru because I just want to see the ruins there, the Mayan ruins. Not just that, but I need to. Does yep. that make sense? Let's see. Ooh. Ecuador. Ecuador. Maybe Ecuador. Oh, come along. No, yeah, I'm going Peru. Let's see. Let's see how we go. Okay, now we get to choose an African country. We've got uh, Morocco. We've got South Africa, which is similar to North Africa. Uh, we have Ghana, Madagascar. You know, North Africa is a, Africa is a continent, yes. right? Yes, I do know that. Okay, Africa, I'm just yeah. checking. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave that there. You know, Ghana. Um, Technically, it, it's a beautiful place, apparently. Yes. I hear it's a beautiful country. It's just very unsafe yes. to go. Like highway driving. I've seen documentaries on that. It's crazy. Uh, so we've got the Madagascar. I am King Julian. Um, Egypt, um, if you like pyramids. And Kenya. You know, can you go there sometime? Okie dokie. So I'm going to go... Um, I'm going to go Egypt. Oh, apparently... Ghana's now safe to go for Australians. You just need to exercise a high degree of caution along the northern border with Burkina Faso. Okay, there we go. Uh, Egypt for me, fam. And lastly, choose a random destination. We have Hong Kong. We have the winner is Sydney. Um, Berlin. I like climbing walls. Um, Honolulu. Welcome to Honolulu. Seoul. You got Seoul. Um, Istanbul. Honolulu, thanks. Noble. Um, very noble. Um, okay. Uh, do I go Sydney? No, we don't want to go Sydney. Do we go Sydney? <laughs> do we go Sydney? Your choice. You know, see, I keep hearing about Korea and the then DMZ. Choose it. No so, one's, it's, it's you. Go for it. I might go Seoul. You go, girl. What did you get? Oh, where it all began. Tattooing. Yes. Oh my God, how did I guess that? Yeah, you have the same home world as Anakin Crybaby and Luke Skywalker. I'm from the same planet as my husband. I share the same world, uh, home world as Azaj Ventress and Darth Maul. I'm from Dathomir. You're from Dathomir, sweet. Yes. Yes, I'm from Tatooine. Where there's plenty of sandwiches. Okay, here we go. Yeah, here we go. Um, again, um, just to, the only thing I want to say in today's weekly news is if you have not yet registered for the, uh, 
through the Red Cross if you're in a fire zone. Please do that. Link is in the description. It is register.redcross.org.au. Um, and that's pretty much all I've got to say for that. Yep. Um, oh, also, too, um, with um, the Red Cross, the... Um, oh, donate blood, if donate you can. Donate blood, because stocks are running low. Um, We're actually going to go within yeah. the next couple of weeks. So. And, yeah, because there's a few, like, if you're a type O, um, they're in need of that. Yeah. So, yeah, you're... Universal donor! Universal donor. Um, so, yeah. Okay. All right. So, before I get into today's topic, um, what I want to say is that if you have any information regarding any criminal activity or you just want to report something that does not feel right... Please contact Crime Stoppers. It's all anonymous unless you just you decide to be identified. And you can do that at crimestoppers.com.au or .com if you're in the US or in Australia by calling 1-800-333-000. And this is an independent, non-for-profit organisation. It's a global network. And if you find yourself able to donate, please do. Yes. And also too, uh, for the people out there who... Uh, you know, not familiar with emergency uh, contact details in Australia. It's triple O. It's triple O. But interesting fact: um, more commonly, people dial nine one one because of the movies and TV series, primarily being out of America. So people are more familiar with nine one one. So now Australia redirects to triple O because they know that it's coming from American line. So there you go, a little piece of trivia on that. So, um, references for today's topic, uh, there were several 60-minute segments that we're going to use and play audio clips from. Um, there's a ton of news recaps that you can watch on YouTube, and I specifically really use the Netflix um, documentary on this. Uh, so, what I want to ask you, good sir, and everyone else, is what do you know, what do you recall about the case of Kelly and Tegan Lane? Uh, Nothing. Okay, so you don't remember it? No. So, although this is one of the most infamous cases in Australia, um, it's likened to the Australian version of Casey and Kaylee Anthony. Um, you, even though it's so big, you can't really find that much of it on it, um, besides the Netflix documentary and 60 Minutes coverage and Australian news circuits. But once I start talking, you're going to remember, remember what I'm talking about. No. All I have for you is water polo player. Uh, yeah, I think it's starting to ring a bell, sort of. So, what do you know, now that I've told you? Oh, no, just, <laughs> just roll with it. Just roll with it. So, this case is made up of two people, and it's very confusing in that someone was charged for murder, even though there's no body, no murder weapon, no evidence. Okay. This right? Is a... I personally agree with the decision, not that they need my approval, that was carried out, because to me it makes sense, but I would like other people to tell me what they think, and please interrupt me, good sir, and tell me what you think as we go through. Yeah, because I think, you know, probably one of the the biggest ones that hit Australia was the whole... A dingo's got my baby. We'll get to that. Yeah. The, that one today, is the one that I kind of remember when everyone right. says, oh, what's the biggest one? Or the... Um, Ivan well, Blart stuff. Port Arthur, unfortunately. Yeah. That, that is the one that kind of 
I'm like when someone asks that question, I'm always like, "Yeah, Port Arthur." Um, that was that was the big one. Okay, not today's topic. Not today's topic. Not today's topic. Dive detail too much. The chicken is back to the coop. So Kelly Lane is the mother of Tegan Lane, and we're going to get into about how that all kind of happened. So Kelly is the mother. Tegan is the daughter. So Kelly Lane, she is uh, currently serving time in the Silverwater Women's Correctional Facility, and she reached out to ABC Four Corners investigative reporter. Uh, Caro Muldrum, I'm so sorry, I've forgotten your hyphenated name, Caro Muldrum something something, and she reached out because she believes and she said that she was wrongly accused by the police of the murder of her baby in 1996. So her daughter would be between about 20 to 22 now, um, it was, she was between 20 to 21 when I wrote these notes about a year ago, so I'd say 21 to 22 now. Uh, and she's hoping that the people who took her baby will come forward so she can tell the world that she did not harm her baby and she wants to clear her name because she was found guilty of murdering her baby, Tegan. So the main basic facts are that she says she gave him to this guy called Andrew Morris, or Norris, who is the baby's biological father. Uh, The basic rundown is police searched for him but concluded he never existed. She says that Andrew's mother was also there in the hospital when she handed Tegan over, but either Andrew or his mother never came forward. His girlfriend Mel was also there because she claimed that she had an affair with Andrew during this time when Andrew was in a relationship with Mel, and she was happy to take the child on as her own. Again, this Mel has never been found, nor has she come forward. Kelly herself has been see the the trouble with her is she is a compulsive liar so whatever comes out of her mouth you have in your back of your head that this is a lie this is an excuse this is not real so she's very heavily criticized for all the lies that she has told um currently she's halfway through her her sentence and while she accepts that she lies Um, She likes to say, where is the evidence that I'm lying? Where's the evidence that Tegan is dead? So I guess we're going to have to go back way, way, way back to the early to late 90s when this all sort of started to happen. And this is what we're going to talk about of how it would have appeared for a woman who... I'm not not slut-shaming anyone. I don't care if you go out and you do things. That's completely up to you. Just stay safe. You know what I mean? However, in the early to late 90s, especially being a female, being viewed and labelled as promiscuous, a liar, and having multiple pregnancies, and that in back in its time was a massive burden for not only you to bear, but for your family to have to bear, and the shame that come with that. I'm not saying that it was justified or warranted, I'm just saying we know how uh, sexist the 80s and 90s were. So Miss Kelly Lane grew up in Manly, which is considered a more country, laid-back, beachy town um, in Sydney or New South Wales. Near Sydney, I should say, of New South Wales. So in this town, everybody knows everyone. Everyone gossips. So as a kid, you learn to keep secrets. Kelly was... A very, very good 
kind of gifted athlete, sports player. Um, she was very strong, very robust. Her family was very well known and very well respected in the community. Um, they were both coaches of local sports station uh, organizations. Her dad was a local police officer. Her mother was the manager of a lot of local sporting teams, especially the ones that she played on herself. Um, a lot of her friends say that people were attracted to her, so she had a lot of guys that came up to her. Um, she went, so it wasn't that she was sleeping around one night stand hookups. Not that I'm saying that that's shameful, but they said that. She jumped from relationship to relationship. Um, but boys were very scared of her dad because he was a police officer. But they were terrified of her mother because she's very tough and she came across as very, very strict. So you can imagine it's the 90s. Um, your dad is who he is. Your mother who is who they are. Communication and talking and open conversation is not very much a priority in that family it's all about looks and your facade that you put out there however she says and everyone says that her family were insanely protective um and then you're going to say to me well how did they not notice that their daughter was pregnant how did they notice that their daughter was not pregnant how did they not notice that their daughter was pregnant right how did they not notice and this is a shocker because it's something that I did not realise until I started researching her case. And I'm not shaming her in any way whatsoever. But it turns out that she was pregnant at least five times during the 90s. The first time when she was 17 in 92. Jeez. Please ignore the next door neighbour's dog. The second time in 1994 when she was 18. Like, can you imagine how hard that is? In 95 at 19. In 96 at 21. And 99 at 24. That's crazy. So her first two pregnancies, when she was 17 and 18, she had terminated successful. Far out. The other three resulted in live births. One, So you have pregnancy one, terminated. Pregnancy two, and this is not shaming. I'm just establishing yeah, yeah. a timeline because it's important to the story. Pregnancy one, terminated. Pregnancy two, terminated. Pregnancy three, live birth. Pregnancy four, Tegan. Pregnancy five, live birth. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Tegan was a live birth. So, pregnancies um, three and four resulted in adoptions. So, everyone reasons that her parents were either oblivious or tried to appear to be oblivious because they didn't want to lose their social standing yep. and they didn't want their daughter's promiscuity to impact their lives and their standing within their community because, like I said, they're very... Um, outside projection, you know. Yeah. Pillars of the community, if you will. So her parents said that she disguised four out of the five pregnancies that she said. do that, but... Her mother reasons that at the time it was not fashion to wear tight clothing and because of her being a sports athlete... I'm so sorry, that's my clothes rubbing against the chair. Oh, um, Because of... She wore tight... She never wore clothes tight clothing she always wore a tracksuit um obviously because she was a sports player most of the time because of all the sporting commitments um that's pretty much all that she had and all that she wore um so her mother is very very so when it got to the hard conversations that caro was having with her parents in her parents home her dad was very 
like he's a dad and you can tell that she's a dad's girl yep. you know what i mean and like he went to her box of trophies that they keep in their living room and was like going through and he was talking about you know she got this for this and this is this and you know she never wore them it wasn't like she was a show-off or anything like that and she was a like a quiet achiever um so her dad's rolling through all of her boxes of trophies and medals and her mum's like rolling her eyes like visibly rolling her head in her eyes shaking her head um and like oh my god just stop you know what i mean so when asked about tegan's whereabouts uh kelly's mother and dad said they have no idea where tegan could be and her mother sandra said well kelly's mother tegan's grandmother um her name's sandra and she says she might even be overseas so in the first episode of the documentary they literally went through the ringer and chased down every boyfriend tegan had ever had Jeez. so they go back to her first serious boyfriend um his name's aaron tyak and they were together in the early 90s for quite a long while um and from what i understand she was pregnant the first two times with aaron uh, while they were together in high school he says that she could have had any guy that she wanted. Pretty much like every girl wanted to be her. Every guy wanted to be with her. Uh, one day while they were sitting in her room, she told him that they needed to talk. And she told him that he was pregnant. And so he did the typical guy thing and asked, you know, instead of like, well, I guess you're a kid, so whatever. But you're on the pill, so how did this happen? Yeah. Um, so they were presented with two options, either keep the baby or terminate the pregnancy, because at this stage, keep in mind, they're 17. So they don't really have much to go on to support said baby. Um, so like good on them for making an adult decision. I can't imagine being in that situation. I hate to be that person that's like, if you can't handle a baby don't be having sex but if you're gonna do that just be protected everyone not that i'm saying anyone is here listening to relationship advice so she didn't want to and she was very emotionally torn um she was very distraught over it but they she knew that they didn't have another choice so very secretly he took her out to the ferry um to shuttle her to sydney and he waited for her to come back he described her as being very devastated and she was absolutely shattered um, so they ended up asking her mother, Sandy, about this first pregnancy. And then so she, her body language is very standoffish again. And then, um, so Kara asked her, do you know what happened in this year? And she's like, um, for anyone who's watching, listening, like she vehemently like shakes her head and you're like, shit, are you right? You're going to give yourself with latch. She's really aggro. Um, and then she goes to Kara, are we hashing out every little detail? She gets really worked up. And Kara was like, I wanted to know what forces shaped her and what was the starting point. And so around the time that she and Aaron broke up, she had um, a second termination. So she was in between relationships one and two. He didn't know about it. Um, but when he found out later on, years down the track, when all this started to come to light, he was very shocked and felt horrible. This one, this was a very late term abortion at 20 weeks. Um, so it was a stage, a two stage procedure, um, which means that 
basically it's at this stage it's very very invasive um you can imagine how hard that must have been like carrying a baby for 20 weeks and then like this very late turn not that i'm saying anyone at that stage has the right has no right to decide to terminate but i'm just saying however the really hardest thing here is that she did not receive any counseling so there's a bit of a mix up there whether she was asked to be counseled or not or if counseling was actually an option for her and keep in mind this poor girl is 18 years old so imagine how emotionally scarring that would be pretty bad pretty scarring so a few days later Kara uh, gets back in contact with Callie and she says that obviously and rightly so this whole experience was very traumatic and I know that we can all believe that um, she said that she was physically very sick she said she wasn't offered counselling and she didn't seek out any services and that she quote unquote just got on with things. So I mentioned before that she's a water polo player. Um, at this stage, Kelly wasn't very heavily into water polo and that's going to come into the fact of what happens with Tegan and baby number four. So... For those of you who aren't familiar with water polo, I was almost drafted in a team and I feel very, very proud about that. But the idea is you have to be a very strong swimmer. Even though you're not doing much swimming, you have to be physically strong because it's a very rough, taxing sport. You come out of there literally scratched like you've been through a ring with a lion and your clothes tear, people elbow you. It's... You know how Shane Dawson makes that um, analogy with ducks? Up top, above the pool, everything looks fine. Underneath, it's a war zone, yeah. right? So physically, it's a very, it's a very, very physical sport. So imagine being pregnant, let alone heavily pregnant. Yeah, that's and competing tough. in that. All it takes is one kick to the gut, which happens normally underwater, and you know anything could happen. So her coach says that she wasn't a skilled player, but she had grit and determination, and that's what landed her a spot on the teams. Her former Australian coach, who is a female, said that they played dirty and they partied even harder. So imagine you're getting into these situations, you know you're pregnant, but you're still drinking. Yeah. So she specifically remembers Kelly wrapping a towel like around her waist... And then getting in the pool. Okay. Right. When she was heavily pregnant looking back, they noticed that she would have a towel or a rope. She would sit to the edge of her pool. So you know how you sit with your feet in? She would take, so like de-gown, take the tail of the rope off and then slowly let herself into the water. Like you know how you lean in off the ledge of the pool to slide in? That's what she would do. And pregnancy is hard work, Right. I've never been pregnant, so I can't imagine. But from what I hear, pregnancy is hard work. You're very tired, especially very, very late stages of pregnancy, right? So imagine c competing in a competitive sport. That's going to Heavily, heavily pregnant, right? So apparently there was a lot of gossip circulating around the teammates and some of the staff saying that she might have been pregnant. Other teams that they competed with and coaches and people were talking um so this woman one day she was standing on like she's a coach like i said and 
she has like she's a mum. She's got kids of her own, so she knows what childbirth is like. She knows what how a woman carries when she is pregnant, right? And so she got a side-on look of Kelly because you know how you face the pool because you're a coach and you're yep. getting into the pool. You're facing the pool, so she's got a side-on look. So she's turned her head to the left or the right. She's got a side-on look of Kelly who was so obviously pregnant and by her estimation minimum six months along and she's getting in the pool training every day jeez um so my question here is if it was such you know town gossip how did this not get back to her parents if her parents like her mother was the manager of the team how did her mother not get wind of this Maybe everyone else didn't want to get in trouble. And I guess more importantly is do her parents have responsibility in this situation or is Kelly the one responsible and the one who has to step up and deal with this appropriately or should she kind of be controlled by her parents? I don't know. It's a 50-50. In some way, I suppose the parents should be at least observant enough to know that something's going on and try and offer assistance. So... Clearly, if, you know, someone's trying to hide something, something's going on. Like, I'm not trying to reason and say I know everything. But when I was a teenager, and I was going through year 12, and we know that year 12 is a very stressful time, and TMI for anyone who's kind of not into this, but um, if I was a week late, right, and I'd never held hands with a boy, I'd never kissed a boy, if I was a week late, it was a big fucking deal. And some like, people freak out over that, apparently. Right? And it's like, and you laugh because what else is there to do? And your mother would be like, my mother would be like, oh, I'm going to get you a test. And it's like, test me. I know there's nothing there. And then the fucking 17-year-old virgin me is like, shit, what if I'm the next virgin me? <laughs> anyway, sorry, I shouldn't take away from such a serious case. But I get what it's like. So what I'm saying is I had a very strict hover tiger parent mother hover parent hovercraft parent mother right helicopter parent and my mother knew what was happening with my body and kept track let alone someone such as sandra is what i'm trying to establish here and also it's a water sport that you have there are things and parameters you have to put in place to not yeah during that time of the month all right So apparently this coach, who again is a mother herself, spoke to the head coach and told him that, look, she's pregnant. She obviously should not be playing. And so he said that he had spoken to Kelly. So this guy's passed away since. And he said, so we only have the hearsay of what this female coach has said about the head coach. And he said that he had spoken to Kelly and that Kelly had said that she was not pregnant. Oh, sorry, this is a different coach. This guy is still alive, right? So the ABC reporter, Caro, she reaches out to this head coach. His name is Bruce Falston. And he told them that he had no recollection of this conversation um, with this coach, whose name was Anne Bain. Um, And now he has since passed away. So sorry, they did manage to reach out to him before he passed away. So if everyone knew, right, if he was being spoken about with the coaches... And Kelly's mother, again, was a manager for New South Wales. How did she ever not hear this gossip? So it rolls around to March of 1995. um, And Kelly's playing in the final. Nine months pregnant. Great. Um, So they lose. 
and they go to a pub to have a drink. At 9pm, Kelly disappears. Right, yeah. Um, she had gone into labour right there in the pub. Far out. So she travels 1.2 kilometres from the Bridge Hotel to the Balmain Hospital. Uh, she was admitted at 9.40pm by her boyfriend, who she says turned around and left, uh, never to be seen again. Nobody knows who he is. She told staff that she was up to date with the pregnancy and had an obstetrician in Perth and that she was just visiting in Sydney for three weeks. And I'm sorry, but as a medical, I'm not a medical professional, but I can just as a medical professional, I don't know anyone who would recommend you traveling at nine months, pretty much full term. Sorry, but no. Uh, you're actually legally not allowed to board a plane. No. Um, the OBGYN would... Like, you can't even drive that far unless it is to deliver, let alone to be like, oh, um, I'm here for three weeks and we just came from Perth. No, that's not what you do, but okay. Um, so what are you going to do? So she was transferred to the King George V Hospital for Mothers and Babies um, and she delivered a healthy baby. So at this point, the teammates are at the pub and they realise that she's missing and they begin to start ringing hospitals Jeez. because they know she's pregnant. So they're like, oh, let's see if we can find out where she's given birth. So they're ringing hospitals and one hospital said that they had admitted her uh-huh. and that she had given birth. Oh, jeez. Right. But again, no one knows anything, Right. So on top of this, two days after giving birth, it's her 20th birthday. I don't know about you, but if you had a daughter and it was her 20th birthday, wouldn't you be trying to reach her? You would be. Wouldn't you be trying to get in contact with her? You would be. Her 20th birthday? So her parents are like, we have no idea where she is. We had no idea. Where did you think she was? Right? So Kelly, <laughs> she leaves the hospital on a day pass. Uh, right? So she goes out, parties with her friends. And then she comes back to the hospital the next morning. And so Kara says this to her mother. And do you know what Sandy has to say about it? It shows her strength of character that she dealt with it how she saw fit to deal with it and this was the first time she's hearing any about any of this day pass stuff so it was really hard work for the reporters but they were able to go through medical records and they found that she gave a false address in Perth um, and that she listed that her parents lived in Perth and that she'd been in a de facto relationship with a guy Um, she said that she didn't have any support in Sydney so she decided to put the baby up for adoption. Um, and what we know about adoption is that it does take months to organise. Um, so she meets with adoptive parents and staff reported her as seeming very traumatised. Um, so when she was asked about this, she said, look, I didn't set out to have this happen over and over. Um, but she says that it is fault on her part. She said that between pregnancies, she did drink regularly, and that's obviously going to interfere with your contraceptive 
medication. So that's essentially why the pill wasn't very effective for her. And she never made her partners wear protection. So this is where the case that we're going to talk about starts. So to set the scene, it's 1996. And she's pregnant with baby Tegan. And this is her fourth known pregnancy. So one of her teammates remembers her, like I said, walking over to the side of the pool, lowering herself in, getting out of the bathrobe instead of diving in like you're going to, right? Yep. Like everybody else. So the rumor mill started churning and everyone starts gossiping that, oh my God, Kelly may be pregnant again. So the teammates, because they're nasty snitches, would put their goggles on and look underwater. And you can see, uh, you, you can tell... A woman, you know, you can tell when a woman is carrying. I'm not saying it's it's okay to go up to a woman and say, oh, you're pregnant, are you pregnant? And ask if they're pregnant. But I'm saying it's very obvious. Um, it, to them, it was very obvious that she was heavily pregnant. So Kelly says that nobody at this stage asked her if she was pregnant and she did not want to push that responsibility onto them. After that, her teammates say that they can't recall her playing a game pregnant. Um, so they play this game. Two weeks later, when they see her again after winter break, she did not appear to be pregnant. Right. So, in 1999, um, we fast track, right? So we jump ahead three years. She gives birth to a boy, who she gives up for adoption. And this is where shit starts to hit the fan. And there's this one guy here... Who, his name's John, and he's the one who broke this case. So, during the adoption process that she went through with this baby boy through Anglicare, sorry, she denied that she had any previous children. She denied the 1996 pregnancy before Tegan, which was the first baby she gave up for adoption. She denied Tegan, right? She said that she had not been pregnant before. She'd never blah, blah, blah. So, they try to contact her on her mobile. Uh, she answers and she pretends not to hear them. Um, she hangs up and she switches off the phone. Because they're asking her and saying, hey, we're just trying to track, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, I can't hear you. Oh, this phone. Click off. Power off. So, they ended up finding out that the addresses did not exist. Um... Ultimately, they said that she had said on the documentation that the father of this baby resided in London. Okay. Strange. Um, so basically, because nothing was adding up, the original fostering agreement with the Anglicare had lapsed. And the agency could not contact her to renew it. So by law, Anglicare was obliged to hand over the baby to the Department of Community Services. So one employee of this department, he, as I said, his name is John Borovnik, um, and he really made, you know, the existence of Tegan known. Yeah. In his words, when he was, like, the first opening shots of him being interviewed, he says that she's a psychopath, a narcissist, and she knew how to play the victim very well. Um, and can I just say, it is in my unprofessional opinion, that I reckon if anyone knows this story well, it's this guy, John. Right? So, John's just come back from leave. And so you're John, and I hand you a case file, and I say, This is an easy case. 
Okay. He didn't. He had no. This poor dude had no idea what he was getting into. Literally, he's back from his holiday, <laughs> and then so he's like, "Okay, it should be easy to chase up." So he starts calling and making inquiries about Kelly. So he rings Wright Hospital, and one of the staff says, "John, did you know that she was here in 1997 at 40 weeks pregnant?" And he's like, "What?" So he starts to call adoption branches, and one caseworker says. Oh, do you mean the 95 baby? So the caseworker knew about the 95 baby that was adopted out first, but he knew nothing about Tegan, right? So he does some more digging, and he finds out that Tegan's birth was never registered registered with the register at the general's office. And to me, that's highly illegal, because I thought the hospital was supposed to do that. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. you give birth, you eventually tell them the name, of said baby they report all of that and then i thought the register has to stamp it in their office and that's what your birth certificate is right yep so how that happened i don't understand um if someone does know please let me know i could be talking major shit but i thought that the hospital had to lodge all that information yeah right and you get mailed your child's birth certificate but i don't know or you have to go pick it up so it had been years at this point since tegan was missing so John gets in contact with the Department of Health and he receives a letter by fax, <laughs> by fax from the Auburn Hospital saying that baby Tegan was delivered on the 12th of September in 1996 by Kelly. Um, around midday on the 14th of September 1996, um, she leaves the hospital with Tegan and hours later she went home without the baby. Jeez. She told hospital staff that she had a wedding to go to. So the coppers do as coppers do. And they obtain a copy of the wedding footage at the church. Okay. And you don't even need to hear the commentary that's plastered over this. But this woman, it doesn't even she doesn't even carry herself like she did just given birth. She's there, she's carefree. You know, she's there just enjoying her friend's wedding. She's bloody wearing white. Do you know what happens to your body after you've delivered? You're just... Downstairs... Gone. ...is a bloody mess. She's wearing white. Right, and she's wearing white. And so she's happy. She's celebrating her friend's wedding. And so John digs, right, and he rings her at her work... Um, because at this stage she was a school teacher, uh, sorry, sports teacher at school, right? Because that's what you do when you're an off-brand athlete in Australia. And she asked, he asked her outright, um, did you deliver a live baby girl on the 12th of September in 1996 at Auburn Hospital? And she answered no. Okay. And when Carol asked her about why, she said that she why she answered no she said because I felt like I was being attacked right so Kelly pretty much recounts that it was very awful and very difficult to hand over Tegan to Andrew to his girlfriend and to Andrew's mother she said that she wanted to take Tegan home but there was no way that she could be the parent that she wanted to be um, and that there was no way whether intentional or not that she could have harmed Tegan so it's now November of 1999 and the case is handed over to the Manly Police by John, the yeah, caseworker. Yeah. Manly's in Sydney, just in case people from America were wondering. Sorry. 
I thought okay. I said that to begin with. So I'm, yeah. I've okay. forgotten. I'm yeah. so sorry. Okay. Um, it's basically like if you tell people you're from Manly, you are either the best lifeguard, yep. the best surfer, or the best beach person anyone has known. That's the standing of Manly. If you tell people that you're from Manly, if people listen yeah. to what you have to or say. Or a really good rugby player. That's it. That's the other one. Yeah. Um, have you put some Manly team there? What are they? Manly Sea Eagles. That's it. The Eagles. My bad. So, John hands over... Um, hands over to the police. Because at this point, she's been missing for three years. Right? There's nothing more that he can do. He's got all the information he can grab. So, Tegan's missing for three years. The Manly police fell through. I'm just going to tell you that in advance. The detective assigned to the case, Detective Kehoe, um, he knew Kelly's dad well because, as I said, her dad was a police officer and uh, he retired in 95. So because Kehoe knew her dad, that's a massive conflict of interest, right? And technically, because her father had ties to the Manly Police Station, the case file should have been sent to another station, not the Manly Police Station. Yeah. Um... And also along this time, we're going to get into it later, but there was a lot of uh, internal affairs had to be called into that police station because there was a lot of, what's that word I'm looking for? Um, That word that starts with C, um, when police are being paid off and they're turning a blind eye. What's that word? That's the word. Thank you very much. I'm an absolute idiot. So the case is handed over. Kelly hightails it to Europe. Just gone. Right? And a proper initial investigation was never conducted. So this detective, Detective Keogh, he did not want to be interviewed on camera. And he told the reporter that he operated unbiasedly and that other things were going on at the Manly Police Station at that point in time. And what I'm going to tell you next is a little sus because I personally... I want you to tell me who you think it is that's handing over this stuff in the next minute that I'm going to tell you. All right? Yeah. So Caro gets emailed a gift, in quotation marks, because someone anonymously wants to give her a USB that ended up containing all the affidavits, sworn statements, and reports. Personally, they did it real anonymously, right? And they really played it up for the camera. Yeah. I personally think it was Detective Keo. Yeah. But I'm not 100% sure. Right, I have no. This is my opinion. This is not fact. Um, I'm allowed to. Don't sue me because I'm allowed to state my opinion. But I personally think it was Detective Keogh, But I could. I. I am most likely wrong. But whatever. So it ended up being two USBs. All of the data was deleted, and it needed to be recovered. Right. So this person said that they were handing over these this data because they wanted the story to be told in its entirety. So the girls, the investigative reporters, do some um, data recovery and they found more than 20,000 files across these USBs. It included confidential police documents regarding the case. Um, they also found internal police documents called Integrity Commission files um, because, like I said, at the time of the investigation, there was a massive, thank you, corruption investigation that was occurring at the Manly Police Station. And this actually impacted a lot of cases that were happening um, during that time yeah. in that area of the Northern Beaches. So Matthew Kehoe was not suspected of being corrupt, 
but he was kind of like in the middle and surrounded by all the shitstorm that was a brewing, right? So all in all, they're able to deduce that six officers were charged with drug trafficking, bribery, and theft. Jeez. So the reporters approach Keo again and with what they know, and he sends them an email saying, I remember returning to the office to find computers disconnected, evidence and case files all in a massive pile in the room. That's weird. Because uh, that's what you do. You have to, like, literally harvest everything. Uh, so he said that he was made aware that several documents and videotapes were removed from the case files and briefs, but he's unable to say if the Kelly Lane brief was tampered with. So we jump forward to August of 2006, and this is where shit goes from. Kelly's coasting, she's gotten away with it, to shit has well and truly hit the fan. Big time. August 2006. Kelly gets pregnant for what is known to be the sixth time, and she's 25 years of age. And she decides that she wants to keep this baby, so she straight away tells friends and family and acts like it's her first pregnancy. Her dad is shocked because he still thinks that at 25 years of age, she's still very young. Um... She was unmarried at the time, so yeah. she, they were worried, like, oh, her dad being her dad, her mum being her mum, is there going to be kind of them, the whole wedlock situation, right? Because that was very big in the 90s. Yeah. To, the term thrown around at the time was blasted. Not that I'm saying it's right or wrong. Who fucking cares? You know what I mean? Whenever you have a baby in your relationship, as long as you're in a healthy, happy relationship and you're not bringing your baby into unhealthy bullshit... So they ask her parents, and they're like, oh, we wouldn't have cared that she wasn't pregnant. We're just so worried that she was so young. She's fucking 25. Yeah, that's that's a different story. So Dr. James Ferry, he was the OBGYN for this baby number six. And we don't know... um, So I should mention, I just want to say this now. The names of her husband that she ended up marrying that I'm going to talk about later, and the names of the sixth child are known... But they've been redacted. So that way, no one can harass them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? So they do exist, um, but for their own personal privacy, their names are not out there. Uh, So, Dr. James Ferry's records say that Kelly visited his offices 10 times, and he describes a patient that visits 10 times as a very compliant, very good patient. Um, so they had all of her Medicare records from the early 90s with all of her previous pregnancies, right? Dating back to her first. And they found out that during all of her previous pregnancies, she didn't even see a doctor once. Far out. Um, so they pretty much went to him and he was like, oh, this is a very compliant, you know, good patient on top of everything. And then so Caro has the Medicare charges. Yeah. And... He was, she was like, look, I don't understand how you can go from not seeing a doctor once to, you know, seeing a doctor very, very regularly, you know, the recommended amount. And yep. he's like, it's almost like you're describing two different people to me. Like you shouldn't appear to, you know, okay. And so in February of 2001, a whole year after baby Tegan had gone missing, um... So we jump back a little bit, I guess, in the, doc- the documentary. So we jump back to 2001 in February. And Detective Keo had asked Kelly to come down to Manly Police Station. 
and he questions Tegan. He questions Kelly over Tegan's whereabouts, and said that she was pretty much there to clear up the situation, if you will. So I have moving forward a lot of audio that I'm going to play you. So I apologize if it's choppy because I did try to edit it to the best of my ability. Yeah. Um. So please forgive me if it's weird, but this is the first in police interview in 2001. In your words, can you just explain to us the circumstances of when the child was born and what happened subsequent to that? Um, after a brief affair with uh, the father of the child, I gave birth. We made an arrangement that he would come and take custody of Tegan um, as I was unable to take care of her myself. So she told police that she and the father had an affair. And he took Tegan to his care because she couldn't care for the baby. All right? They're yep. the main takeaways. Points to take away. From that. So I'm just going to speed forward a little bit to the next bit. Um, During her first interview. Oh, shit. That should not have been there. My bad. Andrew Morris. The natural father of the child is Andrew Morris. Is that correct? That's correct. So she says that the guy's name is Andrew. Morris. Oh. Morris. Morris. She says that she didn't have an address for Andrew. Uh, she did not have any legal representation in this interview with the police. And her dad was like, oh, I'm a police officer. I know they must have blindsided her and, you know, hit her hard and blah, blah, blah. Yep. But her position, just to describe it to you, so she's got, she's leaning over the table, um, holding, you know how some people hold their elbows? She's got her sunglasses on and her head is like pointed 45 degrees resting on her shoulder. And she's very like laid back, carefree, but she's also kind of rocking very subtly. Yeah. And the way she's looking, like, you know the superiority, superiority, like body language, where her head's up and she's like looking down, and you can tell she so very obviously doesn't want to be there. She's very uncomfortable. She's very standoffish. Yeah. Um. So, in April of two thousand one, she gave birth to a baby girl, and she says that she should she realised she should have been honest from the start. Um. So after being dormant for seventeen months, a new detective takes over the case. Um, his name's Detective Gort. And this is where a thorough investigation had kind of commenced. And because he's not from Manly, yeah. he had outside... Um, he was a pair of fresh eyes, I guess you could say, right? Yeah. So he operated completely outside of the town, the influence of the family, and everything. Yeah. So he was like the best thing that had happened to this case. So he arranges a formal interview with Kelly. And because of the large kind of chunk of time between this first casual interview with Keho and um, Gort, uh, she forgot what she had kind of said in the first interview, if you know what I mean. Yep. So in this 2003 police interview, um, this is... I'm sure. I'm sorry. I'm confused. I'm... Do, you, do you know the father of the child's name? Yes. What is it? Andrew Norris. Norris. Yes. Okay. Do you think Kelly understood? So now, is it Andrew Norris? Yeah, not Andrew Morris. Norris with an N for what's the Nelly? November. That's it. Not Morris with an N for Mike. 
Yeah. So Gort, openly gave Kelly the opportunity to come clean and said that if she was telling any lies for whatever reason, he was giving her an out to admit them. Now, this is one minute and 17 seconds long, but I promise it's worth every single second. Opportunity now. If you've been telling us lies for whatever reason, if you know where the child is or what happened to the child, it's your opportunity to tell us now. So between her asking him, sorry, him asking her and her saying no, there's a one minute, four second pause. If you watch that footage, you can tell she's having an inner battle with herself. You can tell she's scared because once she admits something, shit's going to hit the fan. Yep. Right? And it's going to come back to bite her on the ass. So then... The detective asks if she killed Tegan and she yells, no, no, I did not. I did not do anything like that. Um, I will play that for you now. Well, the next one. Oh, sorry. Is that the, that's the incorrect one. Sorry. 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 Oh, God. Between me and Andrew. 
No, far yet. Sorry. <laughs> Great timing. Trigger warning. So, what's your take on that? She's making it up as she goes along. That's what I feel like. She's just talking crap. She's trying to cover what she's actually done. So she's just. Do you know what I take from that? I know what it's like to have to hide shit from your parents, right? That I ever did anything bad. But I get how she immediately was like in this teenager brain of, I don't want, like, don't talk to my parents. You know, they're not going to have any idea what you're talking about. Please yeah. don't involve them. She doesn't them. want to get, you know, in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, right? So we fast forward to Caro interviewing, I guess, Kelly, I guess you could say today, except it's not today. It was about a year and a bit ago. So she says that she met Andrew at, at the town hall motel hotel they drank they played some pool they flirted um they were with it he was with a group of other friends one guy was called dipper um so the night goes on and continues and then andrew takes her black back to uh his place and apparently it was a two minute walk from the pub to his place so they cross a bottle shop and another pub on the way over and carrie says look we did this we carried out this affair while Andrew was allegedly with Mal for several months. Um, and we did it in his unit in Balmain. Yeah. So Detective Gort keeps pressing her to lead him to Andrew's unit. And they eventually went, like, they just drove around for hours. That's what they would do. And one day she points out this unit, which is in a block, right? Kind of like a, it's not a townhouse, but you know when you have, more like units, units stacked on one ch- like one another. Not kind of like commission yeah. housing, but like you would find um, in St Kilda, right? Yeah. Kind of more where um, uh, backpackers would kind of stay, right? Yeah. So she points out the unit in this block of units and says that looks familiar, and so she recalled that he was in the second apartment on the first floor. And that it fronted the street, so his windows looked out onto the main street. And she, when when she was on the phone with Caro during this documentary, she says that now more than ever, she's completely certain that that's the right apartment block. Yeah. So back then, when the police went and they did their investigations, they said that they couldn't find an Andrew Morris or Norris at that apartment block at the time Kelly said that the affair had occurred. So it took a while for the Manly Police to obtain the rental records. Um, so you can imagine between 95 and 2003, that's a long hop, skip and jump yeah. away from each other, right? So apparently all the documents prior to the 20th of December 1995 had been destroyed because law is, you can, you know, once it's seven years have passed, you don't need them anymore. And yeah. for a lot of companies, especially for... Um, real estate agencies like that's a lot of documentation you don't necessarily think that you're going to need them so you know it's quite common for paper trails to be destroyed after seven years because that's also part of the confidentiality so police and the reporters were interested in so there are six units right so there's like an underground not underground but uh, so the the ground level is like a car parky area and some stairs yep. and then it's the first level second level third level and so they kind of go through there are six units all in total that he could have possibly been in if that makes sense 
So for some reason the reporters had these got their hands on these records and they obtained them. So they start to call people um, based on the rent agreements. So some numbers were still connected. Some people they had names and they were able to chase them up with other methods and means. Um, some phone numbers didn't exist anymore, so they're just going through. Yeah. Um, because some and people some people had sadly passed away. People had changed their numbers. However, one family, a brother and a sister, could be reached, and they lived at the top unit, um, unit number nineteen, and then the bottom left unit, unit three, and man named Bill had rented, but that wasn't the guy. Yeah. Then there were two brothers up in unit eleven on the second level on the left, and that wasn't them. And then unit twenty at the top left, two girls had lived there, and you know that that's not right. So. Um, Unit 10, smack bang in the middle, um, on the right, a guy moved out at the end of September of 1995. And that's the the unit that Kelly had pointed out. So it's still a mystery who was there before this guy. Uh, His identity is still anonymous. And under oath, the guy who rented that apartment says that he began living in the unit in late December of 1995. So he essentially was the leasee after the person that Kelly said lived in that yeah. apartment block. So apparently the whole block was canvassed by Detective Gort twice and by a homicide squad. The tenancy contracts are made under the assumption that people who sign them are the ones that are going to be living in that property, right? So whether it's legal or not, depending on the state you're in, that does not stop people from subletting or the agreement being under one person's name but someone else living under there, right? So it's like me saying... I'm going to rent an apartment, but you can live in it. Yeah. So I'm the one feeding the bill. It's under my name, but I'm not the one living there, right? So one witness remembers seeing mail addressed to a Andrew Norris, allegedly. And in their investigation, police showed the tenants a photo of Kelly, and they said that nobody who lived there at the time of, um, lived there at the time recognized Kelly either. And then so Kara was like, but did they get to every single person? Um, and the confidential police files that were handed over anonymously revealed that multiple tenants of the unit block were not approached or interviewed by police detectives. One of these guys is tenant Daryl Henson. And so Kara ends up finding him on good old Facebook and she reaches out to him and says, Hi, um, Daryl, just wanted to ask if you lived on such and such street in Balmain in such and such time. And he says yes. So they start a video call. And he says that he recalls seeing Callie. And she holds up a photo of Callie. And he says, yes, I saw her in that flat. Um, Then it turns out that Daryl has since moved to New Zealand. And he said... Also, what's that clicking noise? I have no idea. Okay. Um, So he says, yes, um, you know, I remember seeing her there. But the police never reached out to me. I remember seeing her leave the apartment complex, walking out of that carport area because he used to work on his car late at night. And he goes, oh, I saw her there so often, I assumed she was a tenant. Which is really strange. So, he says that he doesn't recall the guy who lived there, that Kelly was allegedly visiting, right? So, Detective Gort... Um, obtains a warrant to tap Kelly's phone in December of 2003 and he records hundreds upon hundreds of phone conversations 
Um, so I'm going to place some of that for you now. Obviously not the hundreds of them. No. This way I said some of that. phone transcripting tapping they found out that Kelly and her now fiance uh, are planning their wedding even though all this investigation and questioning is going on she did not tell a single person in her life about the existence of any of these previous children and then he's sitting there listening to this wedding plan she's like there so he's listening to these phone calls happening in real time right yeah so he goes and he calls her and then she acts like there's something wrong with the phone. Um, he says she can't hear him and hangs up and ignores any further calls that Detective Gort tries to make to reach out to her. That's not good. So, in January of 2004, this bitch finally answers her phone and the detectives call her into the police station for a third interview. And... Um, she agrees, and then she immediately calls a friend, asking them to mind a child. And the reason, just listen to this, because you know she's got the kid, so she has to make it look legit, right? Yeah. Um, tomorrow, Thursday, I was wondering if you could play with in the morning from about nine o'clock ish till about lunchtime. I've got to go and do a dress fitting. So obviously, the baby's, the child's name has been bleeped out for her own privacy. Yeah. Um. So she's telling a friend, asking her to mind her child because she has to go to a dress fitting from 9am to midday. Right. So I'm going to play two tracks now back to back and then we're going to talk about them. All right. So, Detective Gort wanted an assessment of Kelly Lane, so he tried to get a counsellor on board. But this is what I could gather from like, as much of a transcript of that third police interview. Yeah. 
So during this interview, uh, he reminds her that, you know, we're getting ready to go to the coroner's court. And again, she gets upset and says, look, it's going to be a massive issue again. She brings up the fact that she doesn't think her friends and family and her fiancé, that's the name that was beeped out in that second track, won't want to associate with her and she's very fearful that she's going to lose her daughter. And so she was so concerned and stressed that Detective Gort ended up recommending her get counselling and so he organises for a counsellor to talk to her. However, the counsellor says that Gort also... The double-edged side of this was he also wanted an assessment of Kelly. Uh, And it was done through the hospital. So the plan was that, this is what the counsellor says, that Kelly would tell her story, the police would subpoena the file, and it would be used as evidence in court. Right? So the clinician was a psychiatric nurse, and she ended up taking Kelly on. She, She said that she knew that Kelly needed support. She says she doesn't believe that Kelly would have harmed Tegan because it wasn't in her nature. She says that she lived in that Callie lived in this enormous fear of telling her parents. Um, so the a mental health professional is going to tell you outright. Look, the best way to deal with your fears is to confront them. Yep. If you tell your parents, you're doing. You know. And that's part of the healing process too. Yeah. Like you're working through it. Yeah, that's right. So she says, look, the best thing for you to do is to tell your parents before the police do. So, Kelly calls her parents and she tells them that something that happened years ago um, is being brought up now. She needs to tell them now because the police are pretty much on their way to see them. So, she says, look, um, I had a baby. The police think I've done something to it. Um, And so, her parents, quote, unquote, believe the story that Tegan was given to Andrew. But obviously the phones are still wiretapped, right? Yeah. So let's listen to this. And you tell me what side of the fence you think her mother is sitting on. Hello? Hi, Mum, it's me. Hi. Hi, how are you? You know, I mean, you told me that this young guy's taken the baby to raise it. Yeah. Which is really unusual, you must admit yourself. Yeah. So was the child still alive up until three years ago? Up until... Well, you said they first contacted you three years ago. Yeah, I'm under the assumption she still is now. And that he's just disappeared with the child? Yeah. Because it's just so unlike a young bloke to want to raise a child. It just, that's the thing I just can't sort of grip. But obviously that's what you agreed. Isn't it? Well, I didn't really have too many options. She, she was... Yeah, that's, um... Very strange because the part where she says, "Oh yeah, it's unlike a, a bloke to do that," isn't it? Yeah, that that part haunts me. That isn't part it? was like because that's what you agreed, isn't, isn't it? it? And that's the bit that sticks with me. So what I take away from that is Sandra cannot possibly Sandra, her mother, cannot possibly grip the fact that Andrew would want to do that because out of place. So again, we're talking about the nineties. What kind of man wants to take on? A baby when he's in an actual long-term relationship with someone else and this is the product of an affair right so Kelly does whatever any other sane woman would do and that is to continue through with getting married so that's what she does in February of 2004 um, the husband's identity like I said is still suppressed by the courts today but uh, they are divorced 
now. Three weeks later, the Manly Police refer to Tegan's, uh, refer Tegan's case to the New South Wales coroner, and that's when the inquiry begins. So at this point, Tegan had been missing for seven and a half years. Um, so Carl Milovanich, who is the New South Wales Deputy State Coroner, places a non-publication order on the case. And in my opinion, I think that this is because you know how you, you don't want to introduce bias into a case um, and you don't want to kind of like interfere with court proceedings. Uh, so this means that the media cannot report on anything relating to the case and nothing can be made public. And I think he also wanted to do it because he was trying to offer Kelly a deal. And he did, like, people still wonder why she didn't take this. Um, he offered her a deal and he said, look, I'll grant you immunity on anything other than the basis of murder. If you just tell me what happened to her, just tell me where she is. Yeah. Uh, Which is, it, even at this point, you can sort of think, okay, something, something has happened. Yeah. All right. So I've got, um, some, this is some audio that was taken during the closed court hearing. Today on the basis that these proceedings are in camera, yeah. and this is a closed court. I suppose the message that I want to get through to Miss Lane is that if there is any information that she can give to the police that might find Tegan live or dead, now is the time to do it. Because after today, the gloves will come off, mm. and I will use the media to um, try and get information from the community. The media will turn this into a nightmare. It'll be a media event. It was her get out of jail, friend. So she didn't even want to take the deal. She never entertained taking the deal. Um, she said to Caro, the investigative reporter, this is not something I would ever admit to doing. So the coroner lifts the non-publication order and he lets the case into the public forum because he was hoping that with the assistance of the media, Tegan would be found alive and healthy, right? So he essentially wanted to use the media for a good purpose. Um, and then I'm going to play you what hit the press. And this is like a, a, mal, a, a what do they call it? A medley of stuff that was floating around Aussie news. New South Wales State Coroner John Abernathy he takes over the case and he said that he really wanted to get to the bottom of this he wanted to delve into who actually was Andrew what did he look like how old was he what was he like as a person so Kelly's defense counsel Peter Hamill said that there were gaping holes in the police's investigation because at this point you have to understand the police are still investigating right yeah. and they're it's been so long, it takes a while to dredge up all this information. So Sergeant Beecroft um, obtained records relating to contact between Kelly and Andrew in 1996. So they approached telecommunication companies to look at phone records 
and they found that Kelly didn't have a phone, at least in her name, until December of 1996. So there were no phones registered in her name until three months after Tegan was born. In her interviews with detectives, she tells them that the last time she spoke to Andrew or his partner Melanie, Mel, was in January or February of 97, and that the phone number may still be connected. So she stayed in touch with him after September when Tegan was born on her mobile phone. And then, as it turns out, um, checks on this phone were not further investigated as it fell outside of the period of interest. Jeez. Uh, so Kelly's 96 mobile phone records were never obtained by police and they have subsequently been destroyed. So reporters look into who she dated during this time and you may know this person in the press because you're a rugby fan. Duncan Gillies! Yep, I remember that guy. He's was, I don't know if he still is, a player of the Manly Rugby Club and they did, dated between 95 and 98. Um, he's a bit of a idiot. Yep. Um, and I say that because he says that he doesn't know that she was pregnant when they had relations and insisted that it was done in certain positions during seven months. And the bit that really fucking pissed me off is that the men, part of this legal proceeding, were laughing like, oh, she only wanted to do it in missionary, you know, doggy style, so that not missionary because she didn't want him to see. Like, that's what they were laughing about. Which is pretty shit. So a bit of sexism there. I, I like I'm like I said, I, I'm trying to be as unbiased as I go through as possible, but I do think that that's quite sexist if I do say so myself. Yeah. Duncan says that he only saw her a few times a week, which is still a lot of a, a hell of a lot of time, but whatever. So in the thirteenth of February two thousand six, Kelly is called as a last witness to give evidence. She refused to answer questions about what happened to Tegan? She exercised her right against self-incrimination and she was stood down. She now says that she was advised by her legal team to do so. Uh, after the inquest, the coroner said, I'm comfortably satisfied that Tegan Lane is in fact deceased. Yeah. And he had homicide called in and they were going to do a more thorough investigation. So when she was first interviewed, she describes Andrew, apparently. Um, so back in the 2001 interview, she spoke about his height. She said that he had mousy brown hair, that he was Caucasian. Um, but police were very focused on the name rather than the face. So uh, Caro, who's the investigative reporter now that we're following throughout the documentary, she wanted a comfort done, um, which is essentially uh, a forensic image drawn up by an artist so she calls in Terry Dunnett, who is sergeant of the forensic unit. Um, so they arrange for him to see Kelly in prison. And three hours later, he comes back to say... Oh, so basically, I should give a bit of context. What he says is that his training means that he has a good bullshit meter. Yeah. Right? Yes, you can make up a face, but it's very obvious when you do that. Yeah. Um, and he was more concerned about what's her memory going to be like. You know, we're talking about events at this stage that happened over 10 years ago. So he was like, oh, I wonder what her memory's going to be like. So he goes in, he does a sketch with her, comes back, um, and he says, look, her memory was good, and that in his opinion, this was not just a random face. She did not sway from his descriptions of him. 
And he said, and so then Kara goes, so this is Andrew Morris. And he goes, I don't know if that person is Andrew Morris, but the person that she described to me is, is a real, in my opinion, a real person that exists. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing. Another reason why it's not an exact science. You know what I mean? Like, but whatever. Um, good on them for doing it, I guess. So we jump back to, I guess, the next part of the proceedings. So we now know that it's gone. It's out of the coroner's court. It's now a homicide investigation. Yeah. So on the morning, the day of the verdict, Kelly says it was the same as every other day. She didn't think that she was going to get put away from this. So she didn't even say pretty much goodbye to her kids. She left dishes in the sink because she thought there's no way I'm being put away for this, right? So the inquest finished in 2006, and at this point, Tegan would have been, um, you know, I think she would have been 16 or so. Um, the case is referred to homicide, and Detective Sharon Rhodes takes over and brings her to trial. Um, this detective is no longer on the force, so she's, like, moved away, and she's done stuff so she couldn't be found. And when Caro actually contacted her, she was, like, actually shocked to be found. She says that because of the high-profile nature of the case, she was under a lot of pressure and she almost lost her mind. Yeah. Um, she said that she set out to find Tegan and to put her to rest. Apparently, she was one of the people who really pushed to find evidence surrounding Tegan. And one of the things that she wanted to do was look, start looking under connect, like houses that were connected to Callie, under houses in Sydney, pretty much. So what they did was they went to Duncan Gillies' house... Um, because it was known that she pretty much lived in there at least part-time, and it was grid search. And this was the part that was heartbreaking, because not because they didn't find her in the places I'm going to list, but because they had to look there to begin with. Um, so she said Tegan wasn't in the walls, in the roof, in the backyard, and she wasn't on the property. Uh, so the whole property was excavated. We know that Kelly's place was bugged, and all her phones were tapped, right? So, during one of these phone calls, she very confidently um, says some real fucking disturbing and really rude shit that I'm going to play for you now. And But I want you to tell me your opinion, yeah. all right? I mean, they've already checked it. They already took the dogs in and there's nothing there. So, no, why make a fanfare of digging it up? I remember when it's... You're not a sports star, bitch. No. Right? The only reason why anyone knows your name is because they think you're a baby killer. Yep. That's all. No one gives a flying fuck. And how... Just the... Audacity. Yeah. All right. And the bit where she's laughing and says, uh, they could dig to China for all I care, that's... At this point, if... That's someone who's happy that it ha the baby hasn't been found. Yeah. That they're searching the wrong place, that they haven't got her. Yeah. And honestly, you know, I think what she has done is something a lot more sinister. So, police set to identify the fathers of all of Kelly's children 
because they wanted to build a bank of DNA to compare if they ever found Tegan, right? They wanted to have a bank of DNA to compare to if she was if she is ever found. So the identities of two of Kelly's other live children are known, but again, all this information is suppressed by the courts. Yeah. Um, apparently the guys were gutted when they found, find out, but it's like, dude, you're having sex. What the fuck did you think was going to happen? Yeah. Right. There's a chance every time, but that's just my personal opinion. So November of 2008 rolls by. And at this point, the unsolved homicide court has been investigating Kelly for approximately two years and they still have not obtained any kind of admission of guilt. Uh, they went undercover. They obtained DMA samples. They tried everything, but they still had squat. Yeah. So, in Australian law, circumstantial evidence is not enough to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Callie had done this. And again, we already spoke, like, we don't have a body. We don't have evidence. We yeah. don't have a murder weapon. Putting someone away for this, even though it fits the bill, is very hard. Yeah. So, the police and the prosecution approached Nicholas Ch- uh, Coward- Cowdery, and he's a member of the QC, Queen's Council, and he was the director of public prosecutions at the time, and they wanted some legal advice. So, the police said, look, we just wanted some advice. We want to know what the likelihood of a possible murder charge without Tegan's body would be, you know? Yeah. And so, his view was that the case could be prosecuted because her behaviour, her actions, all indicated that the case had legs to stand on. Sorry. Hiccup. Beyond reasonable doubt. So, in November 2009, there's a 12-month review, and after further investigation, the director decides, they decide to charge her with murder. Mark Tedeschi, who was the lead prosecutor in the trial, says that the case was entirely circumstantial. They had to prove death, like I said, without a body, and that whatever happened to Tegan was deliberate. Yeah. Whatever Callie did to her was deliberate. So this left them having to have a look at all of the other births and pregnancies that Callie had carried. Um, because although it was not directly related to Tegan, it didn't mean that... So, you know how when they were asking her, oh, you have all these other kids... And she was like, nope, 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 nope. That was perjury. Yes, it was. So she had committed three counts of perjury. So they they constructed that based on all of her previous relationships and pregnancies and all the lies that she told, trying to keep things from friends and family, um, that, you know, there was... that they could take this to court. And so the presiding judge, Anthony Wheely, said that he received no application from the defence to block any of these perjury charges. So, because of all of this and lying, and you're essentially up there for perjury, yeah. and all your other lies, you're, you're, you're completely incredible as a person. Yep. So, she's going on the stand knowing that no one's going to believe what comes out of her mouth. And it's just making her look worse. So she was represented by Ben Archibald, and he was a former police officer and a former contestant on Big Brother. Uh, Catherine Laurie, she assisted him, but she didn't want to be part of this investigative journalism documentary. They were both instructed by Keith Chappell, who ran Kelly's case. Uh, He said that he had three weeks to get on top of things before trial began. Uh, 
Police looked for Tegan in schools in every single state around Australia, but they couldn't find her. When trial began in August 2008, the prosecutors focused on the why, not the how and the when, right? So the theory behind why she would have killed Tegan was literally all over the shop. And some of these were absolutely ridiculous. Um, John, the guy who essentially chased all this up the, um, from the, the DHS, right? He was like the person who found Callie's existence. Um, he had a theory in his own head and he said it to the prosecutor. Um, and he said, look, dude, for all we know, she buried Tegan at Olympic Park. Yeah. Because she was trying to compete for the Olympics. You know, she was trying to get into the Olympic team. She thought she was so good. And then so that's what the prosecutor opened with. Um, so this was withdrawn. And no one was allowed to say what led to that theory. Uh, because that statement was put out there, the judge asked the defence if they wanted a retrial. Kelly said nope. And they moved on because Kelly just wanted things over and done with. So the next thing that came as a theory was, hell, she was at this wedding, wasn't she? Um, so that was the main motive, um, that she had to be at her friend's wedding and she didn't want to look like, she, she didn't want to feel like she was second best and she didn't want anyone of her friends and family to know, right? And then it jumped to look Oh, she was aiming to compete in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. In Sydney, right? Um, this was the first time water polo was going to be in the Olympics. In her city, in her country, she would have wanted to be on that team representing her country. Um, and having the baby was going to get in the middle of that dream, wasn't it? Absolutely. But that was discounted because her coaches said that she was not in the running for a chance on the team at all, right? Uh, so prosecutors come forward with the Andrew Morris, right? So they went around Australia and they found a Andrew Morris. He said that he had an encounter with Tally, Kelly, but he did not have, um, Tegan, essentially, right? He was never brought up as a witness on the stand and he was sent home. Uh, it turns out that one of her friends had a conversation with Kelly years back when she was drunk. And she mentioned that she was having an affair with a guy named Andrew and that that kind of fit the timeline, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and this was her friend, Callie. And Callie is, you'd think she's, personally, you'd think, I think she's a credible source. She works with NATO um, under child protection sort of stuff and protecting kids. So she has a high caliber job, you know. You wouldn't get hired for an organization like that in taking care of children and lying, you'd think. Um, but she says, look, I remember her talking about this guy called Andrew saying she was having an affair with him and it fit the timeline of Kelly's um, con con conception. Is that yep. the word I'm after? Yep. However, um, basically the trade-off was, all right, we will not interview Andrew Morris if you don't put the friend, Natalie, on stand. Right? So that was the agreement. So, um, so basically, in exchange for not calling Andrew to the stand, they the defence wouldn't call Natalie. Um, in the show, they interview this 
Andrew, and he says for certainly that he cannot say for certainly that it was Callie that he had slept with, um, because very much so. He, the way he says it was like, oh, the police interviewed me and they were taking me around a man and they were like, oh, there's this groupie who hangs around with the rugby club, right? And she likes to sleep with any guy she can get. And he was like, oh, yeah, all right, there's a lot of groupies, maybe. And, oh, and she had blonde hair and Kelly has blonde hair and this girl looked like this and, you know, you're saying this girl looked like, you know, Kelly looked like this and, he, you know. So they, they planted fake evidence. Do you know what I mean? They led this guy to believe that it was Kelly. And he has since recounted and said, like, look, I can't say that for sure that that was indeed Kelly, if that makes sense. Did I explain that clearly? Yes. Okay, sorry. Um, so Dr. Ann Buist was called in as a psychiatric expert to talk to Kelly. And she told Kelly that the first pregnancy was a result of a date rape while she was drunk. But it's like, I thought you said the baby was Aaron's. Right? So did Aaron date rape you? I'm not pointing fingers and saying she has to explain, but also please explain. Yeah, please explain. Um, so she's saying that the first pregnancy was a result of date rape. Um, and she breastfed her children. So because it was known that Kelly had breastfed, yeah. it doesn't psychologically fit the profile of someone wanting to harm their child yeah. because you'd assume not you would assume it's a very um it's a very strong bond to have breast not that i'm saying that people who don't breastfeed don't have a strong bond with their children what i'm saying is in the context of this case they're saying kelly breastfed and then within 24 hours had done something and gotten rid of tegan right yeah. that that didn't fit the that this um, psychiatric expert said it didn't fit the bill for a, of a psychiatric profile for someone to do that for someone to harm their child after she's breastfed all the children so after four months of evidence and submissions the jury deliberates for eight days and um, they simply just kind of couldn't agree um, what I'm going to play now is kind of what was the end, if you will, of that court case. Sorry, let me just find the right section here. All right, are we ready? All right, yep. this is the 2010 judgment. I find that the offence was premeditated, but only for a short time. It was committed in a situation of desperation, arising from a sense of entrapment and isolation. So, in April of 2011... Kelly was sentenced to 18 years in prison for the murder of Tegan. Kelly has since appealed to... Um, sorry, she's attempted to appeal her conviction, but she has been unsuccessful. She is eligible for parole in 2023, so in three years. And also the other thing too, regarding that sentence, because she's committed perjury, you can get you know, five years in jail just for lying that over That one oath. thing alone, yeah. So. So the judge says that, look, this had taken such a, had such an effect on him and such a toll that he has not presided over another criminal trial. Um, Sharon Rhodes, who was the lead detective at the time for the homicide unit, who was doing all the digging under, organising all the digging and stuff, she says, look, I was medically discharged with PTSD. 
um, and says that this case broke her. And you can imagine the amount of pressure that they were yeah. putting on the cops just to have anything to stick to the wall at this point, right? Yeah. You can tell they were getting desperate, hurting people to make false statements. The psychiatrist said something about the Andrew Morris Norris thing was superficial. Um, so when she was questioned at the end of the documentary, see, so the psychiatrist was like, look, something's wrong with the Andrew Morris Norris thing. I can't put my finger on it, but something's wrong. Yeah. Um, so they questioned Kelly about it and this was so fucking just annoying, annoying and, uh, cringe to have to witness. Right. So Kara's like, are you sure his name is Andrew Morris or Norris? And she's like, how do you question me? I don't want to be attacked. Um, and you know, it's such a big toll on her and it affects her so fucking much, you know, how do you question my credibility? Blah, blah, blah. I'm not a liar. And then, uh, you know how you're in a prison, you only have like, a, all this is done over a certain, like, you know, you can have five minute calls. Yeah. Right. So she calls back after that five minute conversation ends. And then, so she's like, um, she maintained that his first name was Andrew. She says he responded to Andrew. She says, yes, she could be mistaken. Or yes, he could have, she, he could have given her a false name. And then Kara's like, thank you. Like, that's all I needed you. Because at this point, Callie has never admitted she said wrong information. Yeah. So it was a big deal, right? And then Kara's like, fuck. And then she's like... And then in my head, I'm like, well, if she's lied about this and she's only coming to terms that she has Andrew's name wrong, what else is she bloody wrong about? Yeah, exactly. So, um, basically she's saying Andrew could not be the real name. So this whole time, they're looking for someone by the wrong name. So, as of uh, the conclusion of the documentary was... The documentary was pretty much put out there in January of 2019, right? And so, as of January 2019, they said that the wake of the documentary, the New South Wales Department of Justice was considering a petition to review the trial and conviction of Kelly Land for murder. The petition was going to be driven by RMIT's Innocence Initiative because they believe that the case was a miscarriage of justice. But from what I could tell, no information was forthcoming regarding the pro- like the um, progress of this petition thus far, so there's no updates on that. Uh, despite the failed appeal in 2013, Kelly still maintains her innocence and she believes and says that Andrew and Tegan are out there somewhere. Um, so at this point, she's serving a 18-year prison sentence. She's going to be eligible for parole on the 12th of May, 2040, after serving a period of 13 years and five months in custody. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. In, the... If you're asking me personally, I think she could do it. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? I think it's not... They've gone out into the country somewhere and just there's, and they'll like, for instance, as much as she's done prison, it has, it was never confirmed. So it is very open-ended in that fact because there is no body. There is no murder weapon. There is no evidence. There's no crime scene. Um, But I personally believe that, yes, she did in fact... You know, I mean, there's so even much... if Tegan was out there, Tegan wouldn't know that she's Tegan. Yeah, 
And also, there's just so much bullshit behind the actual case regarding what she's saying and everything. It's so mixed up that... You can't... You can't... up from down. You can't discern what actually happened. So, yeah. Personally, I don't think she's going to have served enough time. No. No, not at all. So... So, um, yeah, I... Like I said, I wanted to pick up some more true crime, but I figured I would... Like I said, ease us into it. We did a missing person. Now we did a not so... We don't have any... For all we know, this could have been a violent story. We just yep. don't know what happened. But I thought I'd work us up to yep. hard-hitting cases. Um, what did you think of this one? Yeah, I just still think it's, you know, dodgy as hell. You know, She's done it, but she's sort of got away with it in a way. And it's just... It's so warped. So, yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's what I leave you with. Um, please be sure to let us know your thoughts and opinions. Um, what you think, whether you think she did it. What, you know, I don't know. I When I say I don't know, I just mean like... I think she did it. Oh, I, I 90, don't want to say I know because... 99.9% yeah. sure that she did it. Because it's just all, you know, the way she was acting. And uh, just something about... Just something about the the way she speaks about it and yeah. listening to she's her just in the interviews, and joking about yeah, it. Yeah, something just does not sit right with me. I'm not saying I'm the best auditory cue consultant, but in my heart, in my gut, I something just doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. But that's it. That's all I have for you today. Yeah, no worries. Um, be sure to let me know, us know, what you think. What side of the fence you sit or stand on. Um, as always, if there's a specific topic you want us to cover in this podcast, please be sure to let us know whether you email us, whatever, reach out on any social medias, or you fill out um, a topic request form in our topic request form, which you can find linked in our show notes and description. Thank you so much to literally the last episode that we uploaded less than... It's been live less than 12 hours and yeah. people have gone nuts for it. So oh, yeah. thank you so much, thank you very much. Um, for your support. It's absolutely crazy. Not that we care about the numbers, but the fact that people enjoy they're it. picking it up. You know, the numbers are picking up and increasing. It's more just, you know, people yeah. enjoying themselves. That's the main thing. So um, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Yep. I uh, hope you enjoyed this topic. Um, next week we're picking back up with the next Ancient Wonder, I believe. Is that what we're doing? No! Next week we're doing a special request that you requested a little while ago. Oh, nice. That is set up and ready to go. Cool beans. Alrighty, goody twenty then. That's it from me. Yep, that's it from me. And, uh, until next time, I'm Full Metal Chicken. I'm Steph Afar. And we be signing off. May the Force be with you. May the Force be with you. And also with you. And, yes, um, I'm going to go back to editing again now. That's fine. I'm going to have breakfast and lunch. It's probably going to take me like seven years to finish. Anyways, yes. So keep posted on that. It's about 50% through. So that's going to drop in a few weeks. Yeah. All right, everybody. Hoity-toity. Hoity-toity. Next time, enjoy. And uh, thanks for uh, listening. Bye. Bye. Adios. Muchachos. Adios. Muchachos. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Signing off. Again. Bye.